Hey everyone, it's Rob with Four Songs. You know, I usually start these things with some pleasantries about how to follow me on Twitter or how to subscribe to this podcast, but none of that this time because we're going to get right to it. I mean, I still can't believe this happened. I got to talk to James Fernley, co-founder, accordion player for the seminal English-Irish punk band, The Pogues. That's right. Let that sink in for a second. I got to talk to a founding member of one of the best, most influential punk rock bands of them all, The Pogues. Uh, Yeah, just let that kind of sink in for a minute. So I spoke to James in September of this year from his home in L.A., where he's been for the last probably 30 or plus years or so. I've been sitting on this for a while because I wanted to wait for a special occasion, and I was thinking about it, and then I realized that it was about 30 years ago, November 1993, that I first heard The Pogues. Now, of course, I was 17 at the time, and by then I was already into The Clash and punk rock bands like Public Image Limited and others from that era. For whatever reason, I just hadn't come across The Pogues yet. Just, I don't know, you know, back then, before the internet, before Spotify, before you could just ask your phone to play any song you want at any time, you had to go buy stuff. You had to go to the record store and you had to spend your money. So you had to do it judiciously and you had to, you're at the mercy of the store. Whatever they had is what you got. So, you know, it's no wonder that it took a while for me to get into the Pogues because I just wasn't exposed to them. And until my senior year, when a teacher pulled me aside and said, hey, Rob, I know you like all different kinds of music. Here's a stack of about 20 plus records. Check it out. Take as long as you want with them. You might not like any of them. You might like all of them. Who knows? You might find something that'll change your life. And well, it turns out I did. The first one I put on was If I Should Fall From Grace With God by the Pogues. It was this time of year, right around Thanksgiving. I'll never forget it. You know, what's funny is, you know, we all associate Shane McGowan, you know, his voice, his words, his antics as the Pogues. Well, I was thinking about it when I was talking to James, and I realized that the first thing, the first note, the first tone I heard when I put the needle on the record player was James's accordion. It was that beginning of If I Should Fall From Grace With God. You know how it goes. And that's my introduction to the Pogues. And I don't know what it was, because at that point in time, like that, I, I wasn't steeped in Irish history. I, even though my mom's side is Irish, we didn't grow up singing traditional songs or even learn, learning that much about the past. But something just felt at home when I put it on. It was a, a feeling that I don't know if I've ever really had before listening to a new album. That's why it's such a great honor to have James on the show. Now, of course, we talk about the Pogues. How could you not? But we also talk about James's new band, the Walker Rotors. And of course, the Walker Rotors had the misfortune of releasing their first record right before the pandemic, August 2019. The Walker Rotors album, it's brilliant. It's got some Pogue sounding stuff. But you know, what's interesting about the Walker Rotors is that in, in addition to James Fernley, we've also got Ted Hutt from Flogging Molly and Mark Orrell from the Dropkick Murphys. So we're talking about an Irish punk supergroup. We talk about three songs from the album, Lord Randall's Bastard Son, Old Tar Road to Sligo, and Turned Out Nice Again. And then we wrap things up with a spirited conversation about the band's latest single, which came out a couple years ago, Smokestack Lightning, which is a Howlin' Wolf cover. This interview is pretty wide-ranging. We talk a ton about the Pogues, of course, Shane McGowan, and the lessons he drew from songwriting, that just being around people like Shane and Philip Chevron and Jem Finer, of course. Joe Strummer, you know, gosh, it's, yeah, But we also talk about how James's own songwriting has evolved. It's a doozy, folks. You're not going to miss it. So sit back, relax, and 
Boy, it's just such an honor to welcome James Fernley to Four Songs. Thank you so much, James, for, for joining mm. me today. It's, as I said, it's a true honor, and like many millions out there, I'm a huge Pogues fan, so just to have you on here is just a, it's an honor for me, so thank you. Thank you very much, yeah. So, you know, I started this podcast about three and a half years ago, right as the pandemic was really starting, and right after you released the Walker Rotors' first album back in late 2019, so it's kind of a dumb question, but now that we're coming out of things, I mean, how have you... The last few years i mean what's it been like as, as for both personally and well it's been a bit obviously it's been a bit of a bit, bit of stop and start or hurry up and wait sort of thing i mean there's a few factors i think involved with all that my age being one of them mostly it was the, the pandemic i'd say because we'd, we'd had quite a good head of steam i think with a few sort of obstacles or things that would let the steam out anyway to do with the management primarily and also financing for the for the actual record and then it was uh, ted's manager who's sadly not with us anymore he died just over a year ago i think a guy called uh sandy roberton who'd done producing way back till you know the the middle of the 70s and maybe before that so he helped us out with his record label and he was the one that got the promotion stuff going for us and then and then he he died so we're in a little bit of a limbo still with a record label shouldn't be too difficult to figure out you know it's Ted was particularly close with um, Sandy Roberton, and so was Brad, who plays bass with us. Uh, Sandy was also Brad's manager, because uh, Brad's also a record producer himself. So this uh, it's like a family member having gone away, uh, and that's been a bit difficult. Then with the pandemic and, and so on and so forth, we did one Zoom kind of gig at the Gold Diggers in um, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And so now it's just like... Um, back back to it but but not as if you stopped at a certain level you kind of dip down and then you have to sort of not start from scratch so much and also the scratch that we started from you know we've got a story there you know with with myself having played the accordion with the pogues and ted having been one of the founder members of uh, flogging molly and mark you know being a integral part multi-instrumentalist with um, dropkick murphy so that's how i started from scratch we've spent the summer writing songs the three of us to put to put another record together hopefully sooner than later for so many people who had albums either just released or ready to go right as COVID hit i mean the carpet was pulled under you and like mm. i understand what you're saying like you, it's not starting from scratch but you you couldn't really support do a whole lot with the first album and then maybe you is there a thought like well let's just kind of work with that as much as we can or is that just that's the first album that's over and we'll just kind of focus on the new stuff i think it's maybe i wonder if it is that the, the first album's kind of sort of over because it's not as if we've moved on you know artistically with with anything new uh, or anything, I mean it's um, still the same three guys that are basically writing the songs, 
I mean, I'll come up with with something uh, that's that I've been working on by myself and um, and Mark too. Except I have said to everybody that I think there should be one person to do the lyrics, and I I I, I have stressed that I think that's my purview, really. <laughs> I don't know because. I, yeah, I think somebody has to, I think one person has to have a point of view. And uh, uh, and I've just chosen me to be the one to have the point of view when it comes to the to the words. And also I found since leaving the Pogues and everything, uh, I mean, I wrote a song for the, for the Pogues after Shane had left. It's almost as if like a stone had been taken off. And then, I mean, I'm not saying that a whole sort of, lava of you know lyrical material came out of me but it was it was an opportunity that that uh, I wasn't unaware of mm. so I did uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the song Drunken Bolt yeah from the Pogues which was basically about Shane and about us just one of those songs I guess that that you know if songs have to be written that that one I had to write that one to sort of get some shit out of my system, I guess. Well, so it sounds like you, you're you're saying that when Shane left, that opened some opportunity for you as a writer. And I know the Pogues had a number of of great songwriters in the band. Yeah, no, they did. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> but yeah, when you were learning these instruments, though, were you writing at the time, or was it just learning the accordion? No, I, I... I tried some writing, but I didn't really understand how how it was supposed to work. I thought it was just a matter of, oh, here, here's my idea. It's a tune that goes like this. And then that sort of dropped a bit flat with this in this rehearsal thing that we had. I was a bit naive about, about music making. I, I, I suppose I came from a... If it's a discipline or, or not, I don't really know. But it was just making shit up off the top of your head. That's what I did pretty much all the time through school. I just jammed. Because it was the late 60s, early 70s sort of thing. And that's what people did. They just made shit up. And then you either ran with it or somebody turned it into something else. So I didn't have that those chops that I know Jem Finer has. And Shane certainly had was there's a point to making tunes up, and you have to be able to tell a story. So just coming up with a a, a tune just because it's a tune isn't enough in 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 this context anyway to for it to make any other sense, um, meaning to, for it to make sense unless you make it into a story that you're actually trying to take somebody from here and then move them to here and they will have had an experience of that transition in the space of, you know, three or four minutes or, or whatever. But I suppose being exposed to Shane's songwriting at, I was going to say all levels, but I don't think at all levels, because he... he he had those songs pretty much started and gestating in his head. But the the process that they went through whenever we came to a rehearsal into, or into the studio was that 
they, 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 the, the music and the lyrics were both saying something. The, the lyrics obviously were, but the way that the music was brought in to actually make them do something rather than occupy space. Mm. You know, for instance, even even the Wildcats of Kilkenny, I was thinking of, which is instrumental, which is one that Jem made up, and it was just a simple sort of riff to begin with. But then, you know, once you give it a title, and once you let that title and the idea of it seep into the music itself, and then you add the overdubs of people screaming and meowing and whatnot, I mean, it's a bit crass. But, I mean, that happened to every song that we did. Mm. The... That the, everything that we did was working towards telling the story of, you know, a pair of brown eyes, for instance. And I'm not saying all of all of this is was, you know, uppermost in my mind anyway at the time, or conscious at all. But to to synthesise a bunch of fairly disparate sort of people in a room for days on end. And on those days, hours on end, to try and figure out how these songs were going to work the best, and then take them into a studio, and then make them work even better. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm just wondering because you know, it's, aside from Shane, you mentioned Jim Viner, but you had you know Philip Chevron and Spider, and yeah, no, yeah, no, and Strummer, <laughs> and Strummer, yeah, no, that I was mean, amazing. Um, I mean, Strummer was a bit of a, um, an, uh, I guess, an, an adjunct in the sense. Well, not when he, not until he got into producing for us at, for Hell's Ditch, and then he, then he was not so much of a, of an adjunct, because live and travelling with him and rehearsing with him was um, was was a, a, a great experience. I learned such a lot from him about being on stage and about playing with people and looking out for one another, which it's not that I hadn't done that before, but it became a bit more, you know, conscious, the the way that we were a a team rather than a <laughs> rather than a, a bunch of sort of well sometimes like victims, do you know that we we were there to make things happen rather than to get through shit, in a in a in a sense, and 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 Philip, of course. But I mean, Philip never came into the band as a songwriter so much as you know. Well, Jem Jem's family was growing, and so he had to take time out. So um, so Philip came. Oh no, but then yeah, but then Philip did come in and do oh, something about going over the sea. I can't yeah. remember. Yeah, and Laura Lie particularly. Well, as you've, you know, we'll kind of get into the, the Walker Rotors now, and as, as you've become writing, become more of a writer on, on the lyrically at least, and I know musically it's probably more of a the three of you with the band, but are there lessons that you've taken from being around such a wealth of, of songwriting experience that you apply now? <clears throat> yeah, the, sto- the storytelling, the language, I love Shane's language, and it's mostly Shane that I, that I would say is the inspiration for for me to be doing any writing at all. I just love the way that he puts things and 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 where he puts you as a as a 
as a listener and the way that he fucks with you as well to give you one thing as if it's like a gift and then to sort of snatch it away in the next line it's um it's fun it's a lot of fun and I, i want to be able to do stuff like that i do consider myself a bit of a whippersnapper i mean I'm, i've been so lucky to have lived and worked with someone like shane of that that talent and that mischievousness and and orneriness and and whatever else shane is was i want some of those attitudes to come out in what i what i write as well as long as they're sort of true to what i think what sort of person i think i am mm. as well you know from the you know i rather prided myself on being a bit of a scamp sometimes yeah i like the scampishness but i also like the way that we're all on this sort of rock hurtling out into a never-ending universe and who the, who the fuck knows what's going to happen next right. and and yeah. you know well let's just all at least hold one another's hands from on occasion just to say you know we can get through this and and you know, i don't know yeah and fuck the twats who are trying to fuck it up for us so yeah. <laughs> well so we'll talk about the walker rotors and as we mentioned at the outset you, you released your first record and we'll talk about three songs from that record plus your latest single which came out a couple of years ago um the Helen Smoke smokestack lightning and yeah i mean is the I mean, obviously, it's a different makeup, different band. Does the writing process is it more of a collaborative than it was in the Pogues, or was or was it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, yes. When it comes to lyrics, no, uh, because as as I've said earlier on, that uh, I do feel selfish like this. But I, I think it's important somehow that 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 one voice is the one that you know, voice in in the metaphorical sense that you have. There's a, the one, the, the one character, or the one narrator, I would say, maybe, in the middle of it. So I, I do all the lyrics myself, and then we, Mark and Ted and myself, knock things around, whatever ideas that we've had, to see which ones will fit together, which ones, and then some of them don't, or, or then, and Ted's like a sort of uh, landscape painter in a sense that he'll take these elements and he'll make a, a picture out of what me and Mark and also Ted will bring into a canvas as it were it's not you know just a lot of doodles but it becomes like you know it's got a vanishing point and it's got um perspective and it's got height and width and and a, and 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 a kind of a structure that that's not there just by bringing a load of tunes together. That, that's the storytelling part as well, musically. I think Ted, Ted's really good at, at that. Uh, I'm just thinking of songs like um, Will You Go, Lassie Go, which um, uh, obviously I've listened to low, it's because you know, we recorded it. But there's always, there seems to be always something new to hear mm-hmm. that Ted's doing with the production of it and with it being in in-house as well that it's part of the whole creative process of the thing it's not we've got these songs hey famous producer person can you make sense of them 
they're being made sense of right from the beginning. Right. So it's the whole process is from day one right the way through to your. I mean, that's a privilege. That yeah. is, it's it's very rare. I, well, I've I've never come across that to have your producer right there. Uh, well, let's start with Lord Randall's bastard son, which I think kicks off the record. But I mean, to me, this is probably the most Pogsy song on the record. Yeah, I guess. Uh, well, it's got it's got Pogs references in it. There's uh, the last verse is uh, Christ, what the hell's that over there? And that's from Down in the Ground Where the Dead Men Go that um, that Shane wrote about the Irish famine and the ghosts that haunt Ireland still. I, I had fun with um, pulling in all sorts of, lyrically anyway, pulling in references from, well, Bob Dylan was was the, not the biggest inspiration because it's, you know, it's still Lord Randall is the, 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 the ballad about the guy coming home from, his girlfriend and he's found out that he's poisoned. Yeah. But then Dylan takes the poisoning thing to another level by saying it's it's every fucking thing out there is poisoning you. I'm not saying I'm making it any better, the idea. But my idea was to have Lord Randall come back and he's been it's not only has he been poisoned metaphorically, but also the person he's coming back to is the one that's responsible for it all. So that was that was fun to come across that, and then to draw in, you know, the rhyme of the ancient mariner, and even uh, a couple of um, lines from London Callings in there. Anything that's apocalyptic, uh, I just threw it all in, and then <laughs> then made it then made it rhyme. That's that was what I did. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a fun one. I mean, it, you can tell right from the start. I, I almost kind of thought it was the son from the lover. You know, they had like a and like the son was coming back, but it, it sounds like this is Lord Randall survived, and I guess that's where you talk about he's not dead. Yeah, this, this yeah is I never even thought that. Yeah, no, but it's the mum that's um, that's turned the tables on 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 him. He was the, the, she's the one that. I don't know why she would be the one that was gonna like stick the knife in and twist it. Uh, yeah. why would mum why would mums do that? But I just thought it was funny. Yeah. To, just when you think that you're safe. No, right. sorry, you're not. You're <laughs> it's not. like that you said the Shane McGowan thing, you go one way and then he takes it. <laughs> no, that's true. Well, thanks very much. That's very flattering. Like Crocker 
a lot of fun um, to get words like Valkyrie and Crockery to rhyme but yeah. it was was great. And it was Mark's um, uh, tune uh, thing that, that got it going. It's just really rollicking. It's yeah. such a great, such a great tune. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it kind of has that, you know, has the Pogues melody of the verse, but the chorus is very much like Dropkick Murphy's and Block of Mile, that just very anthemic, like, drinking, we're going to... Yeah, right, yeah, that, yeah. Just, it does have that the merging of the, the the influence and then the ones who are influenced by by you all and the ending of the song just yeah what's who's over there who's sitting in the chair and then wait a minute sounds like, <laughs> <everybody's> like what <laughs> been you the whole time <laughs> That's a fun one. Um, so the next one I want to talk about that slows things down a bit, Old Tar Road to Sligo, which is uh, a bit more mm. valid. And it, it refers to the old standard, the Tar Road to Sligo. Is that um, how did this one No, work? I don't know that. I, okay. um, I mean, I knew I knew of it as a title. I don't know it as a, as a song at all. But I was, I, I, I got into my head that it'd be a good idea to try and rhyme anything with the word go at the end. <laughs> So, you know, Sligo was a was a word that rhymed with Winnebago and oh. um, Ego. Chicago. Uh, um, <laughs> Chicago. So, so it's just like a challenge that I gave myself. It's been, it sounds frivolous, but I don't care. So, but then as as the song gets going with, with, with the rhyming uh, um, sort of challenge, then sort of things started to come up. You're like, so... With the Winnebago thing, I remember uh, when we the Pogues toured the United States that Daryl Hunt, who sadly died just over a year ago, and I'm missing uh, a lot, he told me about when he travelled from San Diego to New Orleans, and that's actually in the lyric, or used to mm -hmm. be in the lyric. He travelled with uh, a guy called Charlie McLennan, who was our road manager at the time and he'd rented a, a Winnebago to get from from most of the gigs but particularly this one from um, San Diego to New Orleans and Daryl travelled with him in the front seat of this Winnebago to go across America on it and not that there's any particular story attached to it but just the whole image of mm -hmm. one of us being with the road manager and the road manager had blue eyes there's always <laughs> blue eyes everywhere and, and you know and how romantic that was and the stuff that he would have seen, the landscapes and all that kind of um, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
today Up on the hill Is that your voice I hear there singing in the wires Is that your And the blue-eyed one in the lyrics is is McGowan, of of course, because I, I associate him with, you know, somebody who's, you know, well, with uh, with streams of whiskey. When I first heard that, I got so enthused about drinking, and I wanted to drink the way that Shane could drink, and just bowl along and just go after everything. I found that song really exciting. And I think some of that I wanted to come into um, the, ta- the old Tyro to Sligo was wherever, you, wherever you're going to go, mm-hmm. then can you take me with you? Because yeah. what you're doing is really exciting. Mm. And I wish that I could do what, what, um, what you do. It would have been great to have been a poet at one time, but it's safer to be a li- to to be a lyric writer than it is to be a a poet. There's less fewer stakes, if you know what I mean. Somehow. Yeah, I think a lot of people would say though, like that song, like "Turn Up Nice Again." I mean, it it's poetic, and I think there's a lot of imagery in there, and the way <laughs> yeah. it starts the kids and kings and queens, and um, what's what's going on with with on this one turned up nice again well it's um it's a bit soppy english kind of thing i mean i've, st- I've stolen from a poet who, who i adore called philip larkin but he's a, a, a yeah poet who's just fucking got it somehow because he writes about england in such in, in a way that that really sort of affects me and so, um, name the kids after kings and queens was, is, is, is a lift from Philip Larkin.
And then also in that, in that song, we've got uh, Vera Lynn singing The White Cliffs of Dover and We'll Meet Again, the Wolf War songs. So there's like, you know, that kind of pride in England that, and I guess around the time that the Brexit thing was happening, that, you know, the pride in England is is something that I can't deny but I don't really have to approve of it. Mm-hmm. The way that it's it's uh, manifested itself in votes like the Brexit and, and, and also what how the politicians played that Brexit thing as well. You know, my mum and dad lived through the fucking war and and they turned out to be fucking nice people, um, by and large. Mm. No, no, I should, shouldn't say by and large. They were nice. They were nice people. Um, and how they manage that after going through those deprivations and everything, I, I don't really know, but um, they did. I mean, now that you've described it that way, the song just takes a whole new meaning for me. And it reminds me a lot of like what Ian Hunter writes a lot about when he, you know. Oh, all right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, He does a lot of that. He's English, but, you know, he's been in America for like 30, 40 years, but he writes a lot about the pride, but also the the frustration that he has with um, just decisions that have been made. But yeah, that just takes on a whole new level for me now. That's a brilliant, um, really enjoy this one. Yeah, um, and there's the and little Jimmy's got his room again. I mean, that's straight out yeah. of um, uh, the, the the White Cliffs of Dover. Uh, but Jimmy's me. <laughs> yeah, Jimmy can because I'm Jimmy. You know, mm-hmm. Jimmy can sleep in his room again, and it's all like all cozy. Yeah, but at what expense? Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. I would never have played the accordion had it not been for Shane McGowan. Hmm. <clears throat> and I don't know, well, I, I it, it was, I don't have an accordion player. James can play the piano. That's what I'd like to think of it as. Uh, I don't want to think that Shane thought, oh, wow, there's an accordion player in, in the making. <laughs> I don't think he ever thought that. But without that opportunity for me, um, to be able to play the songs that Shane wrote and we worked out with him, you know, at pains, I think that all 
comes out in the way that I wanted to play the accordion to so it was intrinsic to what we were doing mm-hmm. and and it's the same with um with with walker olders as well it's like a something that i just learned that when you play with people you fucking you put it out there yeah and your heart's on your sleeve really and that's 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 what i mean yeah just my experience that's all i always wanted to 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 do that you know you've got your mates with you mm-hmm. so you're safe largely but then you have to play everything that you have to play you've got to be with your feet right on the lip mm. and so you can come back and be with your mates and you're like phew got over that one all right mm. and um it's yeah it's a dance yeah I think. yeah well it's a good segue to the last song and i appreciate your, your time this afternoon James, but Smokestack Lightning, which is the one cover. Oh, <laughs> yeah. How that came together. I read the web, I read the story on your website. It's, it sounds just like an amazing story how this all came to be. But if you can just kind of talk from your perspective. Oh, all right. Well, it, it came well through. Uh, we've talked about Sandy Robertson already, mm-hmm. uh, who's, who's, who's very uh, intrinsic to the hearts of, of, of most of us in, in the band, but particularly Ted and, and Brad. But he he had a dream that that's that we covered it. So Ted took him at his dream word and <laughs> and thought, well, let's have a go at um, at, uh, at, at doing it. I, at the time, I thought, what a stupid idea that is! It's 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 so away from anything that um. So what's scary about it is that you give you give a white guy a guitar mm. and they're gonna play fucking blues straight away and it's like oh you know all right fine yeah. it's an idiom and it's something that that um that every every everybody knows the structure of how you know african-american music went from the first days and before of of, of rock and roll you know the one chord and then the four chord and then the one and then the five and it's and and all it seems to me on most of um, rock and roll music is that conversation between here's your statement in one, here's your repeat statement, but it's in a different context because it's 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 the number four chord, and then you're back to the one to say, but this is what I meant in the first place, and then number five comes in and says, yeah, but what about this? Mm. That has been the kind of friction in song structure that's that's permeated pretty much everything since the since blues and since you know african americans first came to be forced into this culture uh, the white culture anyway so my discomfort with it was that is a white guy with an accent like mine doing blues who will never ever have an experience like howling wolf uncomfortable yeah that's fucking weird mm. to do something like that but when i found lyrics by the mississippi shakes who had worked with howling wolf back in or i don't know if it worked with but howling wolf had seen them play back in 1929 and 1930 or something wow. And when I found out where Smokestack Lightning, the, the, the 
where the inspiration for it came from, I found it turning into a story that, that affected me uh, a lot, which is um, the cremation of my mum when she died in 1991. I wanted a place where I could get into this story. And it's not about a train. It's about, a, for me, it was about a crematorium. So it's about losing somebody. And where you find them on the cooling floor, to me, was the actual remains of the ashes of my mum dying. Oh, that's that's how I got into it. That's my blues, I suppose, in a way that I lost. I lost my mum suddenly. She had a brain hemorrhage mm. when she was sixty-six years old, and it, it it hurt my family big time and for a long time. And uh, smokes that lightning was was for me anyway. Uh, one of the ways that I could you know process this even years afterwards. It was a great gift for me that. Sandy Roberton came up with and that Ted went along with. gave me an opportunity to sing blues that, that that were mine right and and i wasn't taking blues off anybody else to do it do you know what i'm saying yeah i do because it reminds me and not at all musically but when bands like the clash would do police and thieves and junko partner yeah right of course yeah 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 oh yeah. like okay we're not gonna just i mean because so much you're right i mean so there's way too much just white bands playing note by note and but bands like the clash that they're the brilliant ones can Mm. Make, it, make it their own and it's respectful and while yeah not a carbon copy or anything because who who can go who can sing that way because very different experiences that we've all had but just it when i heard it i was like this is what like joe strummer and mick were doing way when they you know, never thought about that voice i uh, that's that's fucking great to hear actually yeah because it's uh, i if if we've come anywhere close to what they were doing by doing Smokes that lightning. Jesus, yeah, that gives me a bit of a thrill, actually. That, that accordion solo is, is pretty crazy. 
that you have it. And uh, oh, <laughs> that's that's actually Mark. Oh. I, um, Mark came up with with that. I appreciate so much your your time tonight, James. And so, what's what's the future hold? You're working on new music, and yeah, well, we, well, some of it been like meeting maybe sometimes twice a week around at Mark's apartment and going over stuff. We've got a Scottish song. We've got um, a song about singing. We've got a song about Maggie May, and that's set in um, in in a, a municipal gardens in Oldham, England. <laughs> don't ask me don't ask me why. Something about municipal gardens is is good for the working class, I guess. So yeah, we've we've dropped in in places uh, all around the stuff that we hold dear and we're kind of familiar with and some, some things that we're not so familiar with. It's just a question of getting a finance now really to get into a studio, hopefully before Christmas. Yeah, we'll find a way of getting into a studio. It's hard. It, it is hard. Yeah. You know, when you're not so much starting from scratch as we've uh, both kind of agreed. But, um, you know, it's a funny it's a funny business and not a business that I really wanted to ever understand. But I understand it even less now hmm. because uh, I, I was never interested in the commodity side of it. I just always wanted to just make music. And I've been privileged, uh, lucky, everything to to have the, have the the career that I've I've had. Something will turn up, and because you you, you can't keep a good man down, so right. uh, that's basically it. Yeah. Well, when it's ready to come out, I want to have you back and have another conversation. So, again, thank, All right. you, thank you so much. Well, Did thanks you... very much for asking me to to take part in this. It's been really great. Yeah. Cool. Well, I hope you had as much fun listening to that as I did recording it. What an honor it was to have James on the show. And who knows, if I never do this again, I can say I talked to James Fernley of the Pogues. Anyway, I do have more coming, so stay tuned. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.